Amen. Well, as I was thinking and praying here coming up, uh, I thought of Psalm 23. And uh, I didn't learn it in the King James Version, but I like it in the King James Version. In the middle of the psalm, it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You fear evil this morning? There's a growing sense in our culture. I'm hearing it, I heard it multiple times this week from people. My mom and dad were over for, for my son's birthday last night. We were talking about it. A couple friends stopped by for some coffee here recently. We were talking about it. There's a growing sense in our culture of a coming persecution. And it's not just Christians who are talking about this. It's everybody. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you find yourself on. There's a narrative going on in our culture that says they are coming to get you. They are coming to get you. This is what is the major narrative on the news, social media. They, to fill in the blank who they is, but they're coming to get you, to change you, to, to alter you, to steal your joy, rob your freedoms, put you in shackles and chains, you name it, right? It's everywhere. And the world, the world tells us how to prepare for this hurricane, Right? the coming storm. They tell us to prepare for the coming persecution like we would prepare for a hurricane. We're supposed to isolate ourselves, get rid of all the threats, cancel the people and the threats in our lives, get them out of here, board up the windows of your heart, protect yourself, protect your identity, protect the kingdom you're building for yourself. And all of this, all of these ideas about what you're supposed to be doing is driven by fear. It's driven by fear. And if there is a faith in what I believe is a false religion of personal safety and personal security, it's a faith in government, in the systems of the world, in science, and just plain faith in yourself. Ain't nobody going to protect you but you. Run, hide, stock up, hunker down, and if need be, fight. I'm not going to lie to you. The kingdom of this world and all the culture, what it's saying, this narrative, it's not wrong about the coming persecution. It is wrong in the sense that it thinks it's coming, though. I believe it's already here. And it has been since the beginning. Since Adam and Eve left the garden. So many Christians that I talk to today seem to be surprised that we're facing persecution. And it makes me scratch my head a little bit, if I'm honest. Because of what Jesus told us. Jesus said in John 16, he said, In this world, you will have trouble. He also said later in John 15, 19, that the world is going to hate us like it hated him. You don't have to go too far. Quick Google search will confirm this reality. I did that just this week. I read numerous studies, numerous reports. One in particular article said that the rise of Christian persecution across the world is nearing genocidal levels. In this article, it talked about how Christians are being beaten, sexually abused. Many Christian women especially are being singled out and trafficked, exploited, driven from their homes, killed. And it's happening at a rate that is decimating the Christian population in many of these countries. All the stands, Pakistan, Turkmenistan, Iraq, Iran, China, North Korea just to name a few. And that's the more violent end of the spectrum, right? We don't really know the violence yet here in America. 
But that doesn't mean that there isn't any persecution. Already in our country, we're hearing more mild forms of it. It's not violent yet. Nobody's being stoned or killed or our heads aren't being chopped off, right? But people have lost their jobs for not wanting to participate in marriage ceremonies that go against the word of the Lord. Religious institutions and organizations are being singled out and fined for not wanting to provide abortion on demand. In prep for this sermon, or for this sermon I listened to a guy I really respect, and he told a story. He said he recently heard of a parent calling their child school because they had Spirit Day. I loved Spirit Day when I was a kid, right? You dress up in your pajamas for a day. You dress up in your school spirit colors for the day. Well, this school, one of the days, they had Transgender Day as a part of their school spirit week. Dress up and drag, try a new gender, maybe try out a different bathroom, a different locker room for the day. And can you believe it? There was a Christian dad who would prefer that his daughter not have males in her locker room for the day. So he called the school. He called the school and he said, listen, my daughter's got a test this day. I'd really like her to be there for that test. Is there any way that she could be a part of school and take the test without participating in Transgender Day? And the school counselor said, sure. The other alternative is that you raise her as a bigot. Now, I'm guessing that everybody's blood pressure is up a little bit right now, right? You're probably thinking thoughts like I think when I hear things like this. Like, I, I didn't think states had the right to raise kids. I've never seen a state make a baby, right? I think the Lord's design for raising children is for a mom and a dad. Seems like, seems like they ought to have a right to choose how to raise their children. What would be best? Some of the guys in here maybe feel like I do, all right? I'm fine with doing prison ministry from the outside, but if you force this, man, I'll start one from the inside if I need to, right? Make a deal out of it. Fear. Trouble. Persecution. It's not new, and it's not coming. It's already here. Jesus told us as much. He said, in this life, you will have trouble. Church, God did not call us to live on a cruise ship. He called us to live life on a battleship. But I don't want you to be confused. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. People are not our enemy. They're not our enemy. And victory is guaranteed. But that doesn't mean our lives are going to be easy with Jesus. And Daniel's life, hopefully, has revealed this to you. If you're surrendered to and serving to Jesus by faith, there are going to be crosses that you and I bear in life. In fact, if your faith is not forcing you to bear crosses, it probably isn't biblical faith. Jesus said, deny yourself and what? Pick up your cross daily and follow me. You see, if you aren't bearing crosses today, it's not because you live in America. No. The more likely reason is because you're compromising your faith, you're being cowardly, perhaps you're being disobedient in some way. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I know this is really heavy. The psalm says, we start out in the valley and the Lord leads us to the mountaintop. We're going to get there. We're starting in the valley this morning. And you might hear this, you might think, well, man, if I'm not suffering, then I should sure be seeking it out. No, don't pray for it. Don't seek it out. 
The reality is that if you're living with a word-centered, spirit-guided, public faith in Jesus, then suffering and persecution is going to find you. You're not going to have to seek it out. It will find you. And again, this all sounds super defeatist, but let's wade through Daniel 6 and let's discover the hope of Jesus this morning together. Here we'll discover that yes, indeed, in this life we will have trouble, but we can take heart like Daniel did. We can have hope. We can live with faith and thrive through persecution because Jesus Christ is king and he has overcome this world. So what do you say? Let's open our Bibles together. Let's learn from the book of Daniel chapter 6. As you're opening there, I encourage you to open there. I want to set the stage a little bit. At this point in Daniel's life, he's closing in or just surpassed 80 years of life. He's an octogenarian, right? I want you to picture an old man hunched over a walker with the tennis balls. He's not on a skateboard. He's a walker. He's, he's, he's walking around with the, with the tennis balls on the bottom of his walker. Daniel has now survived not one, but two major military coups. His home was ransacked, he was deported by Babylon, and now, just as God prophesied, after Nebuchadnezzar, after Babylon, will come a two-armed kingdom, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. This is the second major military coup that Daniel has underwent. And now that a new kingdom is in charge, where do we find Daniel? He's still in politics. It's been 70 years, and Daniel is still in politics. Let's read in verse 1 and see where this 80-year-old, where he's at, what he's up to. The first thing I want you to see as we read are the positives of Daniel's public faith. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 together. It says this, It pleased Darius, the new king, the Medo-Persian king, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would give account, so that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel, he became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps, and because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. All right, first off, here we see Darius the Mede, he conquers Babylon. He uses force and violence, but now he seeks to transition his kingdom from a rule of man and force to a rule of law. This is a beautiful thing. It's a really, really good thing. This rule of man, like a dictatorship, right? This rule of man is given to the fickle fancies of men. Changes with the seasons, whatever the man in power thinks is what is true and what it's done, violence and force, all of that stuff. And so Darius decides, no, we're not going to be a rule of men. We're going to be a rule of laws, a kingdom with a rule of laws. And that's a beautiful thing because the law is constant. It's supposed to be unchanging, which makes for a more stable and just kingdom. As we read through this, a couple times you'll hear the mention of the, the law of the Medes and Persians. That's what this is all about. When you hear that phrase, I want you to think constitution, rule of law, not rule of men. You see, I believe Darius is a pretty wise ruler. He's wise. And so he sets up mayors, the satraps, or lower judges, district courts, and then he sets Daniel up to be the governor or the chief justice of the Supreme Court. He's over these mayors, these lesser courts. Why? 
Well, we're told in verse 2. We're told in verse 2 that the king does not want to suffer loss. You see, the Bible doesn't tell us just what happened. It tells us what always happens. Government is given to waste, reckless spending, and lots of loss. But apparently, Daniel's integrity and his faithfulness to God had distinguished him above all of these officials and judges and satraps. We're told that Daniel had an excellent spirit in him. And again, I don't have to tell you this, governments are given to waste. And typically, people in the government are given to line their pockets with the king's money. So the king lose out, and so do the taxpayers. But Daniel, Daniel's guided by the Spirit of God. Daniel doesn't squander the king's money irresponsibly or wastefully. Instead, Daniel distinguishes himself as a wise steward. He's just. He's righteous. Dear Jesus, that our government would know some more Daniels in it. Amen? And don't miss this, church. We could skip over this. Why is Daniel distinguished? The text says it's because of how he lived and who he displayed. When people saw Daniel, the text says they saw that he had an excellent spirit in him. Folks, this is the Holy Spirit. We've been told throughout this book that Daniel has the Spirit of God in him. Sometimes pagans say he has the Spirit of God's. Right? They don't know exactly what it is, but there's a spirit in him that has distinguished him. Nebuchadnezzar said it. Bring him in here. He's got the spirit of God's in him. Nebuchadnezzar's wife declared it last week in chapter 5. I don't know what that hand on the wall was, but Daniel, he's got a spirit in him of the gods. Bring him in here. And Darius declares it this week. Daniel has an excellent spirit in him. It's the Holy Spirit, folks. The spirit of God has given Daniel wisdom and enabled him to navigate not just one wicked and pagan kingdom, but now two. Think on that for a second. Daniel is not a little peon in this government or in this other government, right? The Babylonian and the Medo-Persian. He's not a little peon here. This dude always finds himself in positions of power. He is close to the most dangerous people in these kingdoms. One wrong word. You could be thrown into a furnace. He's close to the most powerful, the most politically savvy people. And Daniel thrives here. How? It's because the Holy Spirit of God guides and directs him. And because he is guided by the Spirit of God, and he lives to serve the true king, Daniel does not allow himself to become a politician. He remains a prophet. And you say, what's the difference? Well, politicians serve themselves. Prophets serve God. Daniel lived his life walking in step with the Holy Spirit, and this displayed his faith. It was public. People knew who he worshipped. People could see evidence of the Spirit in his life. And Daniel was enabled to continually and courageously speak the truth of his God to those in power. Christian, you have this same Spirit living within you if you know Jesus. Do those around you see it? Is your faith public? Are you courageously speaking truth to power? 
And don't get me wrong here. We as evangelicals, we love our Bible, right? And we should. It's vital for us to know our Bibles. We need the Bible to live and to come into salvation. But the Bible doesn't tell us specifically what to do when you're the second highest ruler in a kingdom. It doesn't tell us specifically what to do when you're the second highest ruler in a kingdom that gets overthrown by a more powerful kingdom. The Bible doesn't specifically tell you what a king, or what you should say to a king, when a dream keeps him up at night. There aren't any verses specifically tell you how to deal with co-workers who have wronged you, who've got your number, who are seeking to destroy you, to kill you. See, we need the Bible, but we need more than just the Bible. Along with the Holy Scriptures, we need the ever-present guidance and direction of God's Holy Spirit. This is a huge deal, folks. And I'm not where I want to be in this, and I don't believe our church is where we need to be in this. So I'd encourage you to pray with me and how we can live more spirit-filled lives. I want to illustrate for you what happens when we learn to trust and rely not just on the Scripture, but on the Holy Spirit that lives inside each and every one of us. I heard a message this week. A fellow told a story. He said he went to visit a friend in a hospital. And normally when he goes on hospital visits, he takes a tiny little pocket Bible because it's small, it's convenient. And honestly, he said, I don't like to look like a weirdo carrying my big study Bible around, right? Nobody wants to walk around that guy, especially in our culture. You look weird. He said, I don't like to look weird unnecessarily. So he's getting ready to go visit this person in the hospital. And he said, I felt the Holy Spirit tell me, Mark, you need to take your big Bible. So he said, I started to argue with the Lord. He said, I'm not taking that. You mean to take the dead cow Bible with the huge leather and the thousand murdered trees in it? Like, no, I'm going to take the pocket Bible, right? I'm not going to look weird. You should be glad I'm taking a Bible at all, Lord. He said, I'll compromise. He gets in his truck. He brings both. Puts them both on his dash, right? He drives there. He gets there. And again, before he gets out, he feels the Holy Spirit nudge him. Still small voice, not audible voice. Just a sense in his spirit. You ought to take the big one. Lord, I'm not taking the big one. He argues with him. You ever argue with God? He doesn't always win. Sometimes we're stubborn. Sometimes he does, though. He lost the argument. He took the book, big book with him. He walks up to the desk, walks in, he says, hey, I'm here to see so-and-so. You point me in the direction. Yeah, it'll be a minute. Just wait. Hold on. He said, I turn around with my giant book. There's an African lady standing behind me. She's tearing up, and she exclaims, are you the man of God? And he says, uh... Yeah, I guess that's me. They have a conversation. This lady's in the hospital because she has had an affair in her husband and now she's pregnant with what she thinks is not the child of her husband. She said, I came here today to determine whether this child was my husband. If it's not, I'm thinking long and hard about getting, into, getting an abortion. She said, I'm not religious, but I feel torn up about this and so I prayed. Lord, I need to know what to do here. Would you send me a man of God? She said, when you turned around and I saw what? The big book. I knew that there was a God and that he loved me. And this man went on to say that he believes an unborn child's life was saved because he listened to the Holy Spirit. Church, just like Daniel, God wants to distinguish you in your workplace, in your family, 
on your team, in your school, in your neighborhood. He wants to distinguish you as one who has an excellent spirit. Are you listening to that spirit in a way that people will know your faith and see your God? Daniel does, and it distinguishes him before two kingdoms and two worldly kings. That's the positives of the public faith, but you need to know that the Bible does not paint or give us a view of the world in rose-colored glasses. It's not all roses, rainbows, and unicorns for us. No, there is persecution and politics that come from living a public faith, a spirit-guided faith. Let's look at verses 4 through 9. Then the high officials, the satraps, they sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. and No error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in, correction, in connection with the law of his God. And then these high officials and satraps, they came by agreement to the king, and they said, O King Darius, live forever. You're awesome. We love you. Everybody loves you. All the high officials of the kingdom, we had a survey. We did a study group. We focus grouped this. We talked to the experts. Everybody says, all the counselors, all the governors, we all agree the king should establish an ordinance. We should put a policy in place. Let's get some legislation here. Whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish this injunction and sign this law into place, that it cannot be changed according to what? The law of the Medes and the Persian, the Constitution. It's irrevocable. We want a law. We want a kingdom of law, not of men. Sign it in. And so King Darius signed the document. We've got Daniel here. His faith is public. He's being guided by the Holy Spirit. This distinguishes him. There's a lot of positives. God's getting glory because of it. But it's also placed a target on his back. There's politicians, people that are seeking to build their own kingdoms, serve themselves. You see, they don't like the prophets of God. Politicians don't like those that courageously speak and live out God's truth. They want to live their own truth. So, first, the politicians seek to dig up dirt on Daniel. They want to assassinate his character. They spy on him. They investigate him. They hack his computer. They look at his web browser history, his GPS data, his text messages. Sound familiar? Again, church, the Bible does not just tell us what happened. It tells us what always happens. The politicians go digging for dirt. But Daniel, spotless. The only error they can find with him is that he loves his King Jesus. Just think about that for a second. What politician do you know that has served for any length of time and still has a spotless record? Our current sitting president has been in office for longer than I have been alive. 48 years. Imagine if the politicians in our story did the same background check on President Biden. I'm going to go out here on a bit of a limb and guess that they're going to find a little bit more in his record than Man, he's just a really committed Catholic. It's easy to point a finger 
at a sitting president, right? Remember, when you point a finger, three of them are pointing back at yourself. How spotless would the report be on you? And the only thing we can find on it, the only thing we can find on her, she's really committed to Jesus. And I pray that this is increasingly so for myself and the people who call Crossroads home. It certainly was the case for Daniel. These wise guys, they dig around, they can't find any dirt, and so they do what politicians do. They resort to policy. They can't assassinate his character, so let's make some laws to trap him. They get shrewd, they get crafty, they construct a man-made policy that will force Christians to compromise or face the consequences. Again, sound familiar? King Darius, may you always be our king, they say. Don't you think you should establish your dominance and greatness among these newly conquered people? You don't got to be harsh about it. You're a gracious guy, right? You're merciful, but we need to further this narrative that you're in charge, that the people of this kingdom need to look to you, to your power, to you for their provision. Just set it up for a month. It doesn't have to be a long time, just a month. They can't go talk to the priests. They can't talk to their God. They need to talk to you because you're the man. Darius, like all of us, kind of likes the idea of that. I don't want to be God forever, just maybe just a month, right? Yeah. And come on, if you're honest, someone's like, hey, you can be God for a month. You're like, eh. I mean, that's a little blasphemous, but it's only a month, right? I could do that. He does it. I believe King Darius is a wide leader, but he's led astray here through misinformation, biased experts, singular counsel. The leaders in here, CEOs, those of you who own a business, who lead people, take notice here. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. A wise leader once said, trust, but verify, right? See, studies, statistics, experts, they don't always give you the whole truth. Sometimes important facts are hidden or purposely left out. It's the same case when we read our news. You should get your news from a multiplicity of sources, from a lot of different places. You should get all the facts and compare them before you make a decision. You see, the king here fails to heed God's wisdom, and he signs the decree based on the evidence of not many counselors, but a few. And so now Daniel is faced with a decision. Is he going to courageously continue to publicly display his word-centered, spirit-guided faith? Or is he going to compromise? For Daniel, the text abruptness suggests that this wasn't even a question for him. Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, just as he had done previously. Here we discover that Daniel continued to do what he had always done. He continued to do what God had commanded him to do. He prayed with his windows open, facing Jerusalem, just like he had done for the last 65 years. Daniel continued to obey God and follow God's word. And he wasn't faced with just a small possibility of death, He was faced with almost certain death, and yet he continued to obey in the face of death by lion. 
And we're not told what Daniel prayed, but we are given a hint. If you read in, in verse 10, you might be thinking, what's up with him praying towards Jerusalem? Is this a weird Muslim thing, like praying towards Mecca? Is this some weird nostalgia that's going on, some super superstitious, magical thing? Does it really matter which direction you pray? In his case, yes, it does. See, it's not a superstitious, magical thing. It's an obedience thing for Daniel. This is the way that God had commanded exiles to pray in Scripture over 400 years earlier in 1 Kings chapter 8. King Solomon has just dedicated the temple. He built the most beautiful temple for Daniel's God, and he dedicates this thing. And at this temple, he prays. He prays this prayer. In verse 46 of Kings, 1 Kings chapter 8, If they sin against you, Lord, and who has never sinned? If they sin against you, you might become angry with them and let their enemies conquer them and take them captive to their land far away or near. But in the land of exile, they might turn to you in repentance and pray. We have sinned and done evil and acted wickedly. If they turn to you with their whole heart and soul in the land of their enemies and pray toward the land you gave their ancestors, towards the city, Jerusalem, towards this temple I have built to honor your name, then hear their prayers and their petition from heaven where you live and uphold their case. Forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all their offenses that they've committed against you. And catch this. Make their captives merciful to them. For they are your people. Your special possession whom you brought out of the iron furnace of Egypt. If you don't catch the foreshadowing of the iron furnace here, you're missing something. Our King Jesus knows the future, folks. That should encourage you. You see, verse 10 coupled with 1 Kings reveals Daniel's character. It reveals to us that he knows his Bible and he knows what God requires of him. And so, because he knows his Bible, he has ordered his life generally around God's word. If God said to do it, well, then not even a pit of ravenous lions is going to prevent him from obeying the Lord. God said, if you're in exile, that you should pray facing Jerusalem, that you should repent of your community's sins. We've done wicked. We've done evil. You should pray for deliverance. You should pray that your captors would be merciful. See, God said, said it 400 years earlier, and here we discover that Daniel is organizing his life around what God has said. Let me ask you this, friend. Are you as committed to doing what God has said as Daniel is? Lions weren't enough to keep Daniel from doing what God said. Can the same be said for you and me? Here we see the two-pronged nature of Daniel's faith. He lived his life guided by God's word generally and guided by the Holy Spirit of God specifically. Daniel's faith is centered on God's word and it is guided by the Holy Spirit. I was at a conference here a week ago. I got to hang out with a friend of mine. He said something that I'll never forget. He said, if we have all word and no spirit, our faith will dry up. If we have all spirit and no word, well, then our faith is going to flare up. But if we have both the Word and the Spirit, our faith will grow up. See, Daniel is now 80, and he's a grown-up in the faith. 
He's built his life generally around God's Word, and specifically, daily, he is guided by the personal power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Daniel used God's Word to help him instill into his life holy habits. And I believe these holy habits enabled him to persevere when crisis hits. You see, church, when crisis hits, it has a way of revealing our character. When the pressures of life come upon us, they have a way of pushing out what we've put in. When crisis hits, we don't magically become more bold and more courageous. We don't prepare for persecution like a coming hurricane. Crisis just reveals what's already there. Another way to say it is, if you're not doing it in the calm of life, you're not going to do it in the crisis of life either. If you're compromising your faith now to avoid minor consequences today, we should not expect that we will become more bold later when we're faced with even greater consequences. Daniel's life proves Jesus' statement in Luke 16. He who is faithful with little will be faithful with much. And he who is dishonest with little will be dishonest with much. Daniel consistently lived out his faith in the calm of life, and because of that word-centered, spirit-guided, those holy habits that he put into place, he was sustained in the crisis of life. But it did cost him. There was a cross to bear. Because of his faith, he's thrown into a pit with lions. This brings us to the product of a word-centered, spirit-guided public faith. The king realizes he's been duped. Verses 11 through 28, he's called in his own experts. He calls in the lawyers. Sees if he can see any loopholes in the law. But he realizes his hands are tied. And here again, we see a great reminder. Psalm 146.3 Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. No earthly power, no group of lawyers, not even King Darius can save Daniel. And Darius realizes this. And then something I believe supernatural happens here. Something miraculous. Daniel's faith seems to be caught by King Darius. Daniel's courageous faith has become contagious. The king has exhausted all his earthly options, and he makes a declaration in verse 16. Now, I didn't know this until I read a commentator on it, but apparently in the Aramaic, this isn't just wistful thinking that Darius is exclaiming. He's making an affirmative statement, a statement of faith, a fact. As the stone is being rolled, (coughs) excuse me, as the stone is being rolled in front of the pit, (coughs) King Darius, the pagan king, declares, May your God whom you serve continually, Daniel, may he deliver you. He prays. And in case you don't believe me that the king here chose to release his fear and trust in God by faith, look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, Then at daybreak the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out, and in a tone of anguish the king declared, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Does this sound like someone who has given way to fear? Do you wake up early in the morning and 
rush out to meet someone if you have a sense of despair and dread? Probably not. No. You get up early and you rush around if you're expectant. I'm not saying there's no doubt here in King Darius, but he is clearly, to me, chosen to put faith in God and rest in his power. The text even says that he fasts. I'm sure his theology is not completely filled out here, but that's the beauty of our God, folks. He says all it takes is a mustard seed, not a complete and robust theology of God. King Darius seems to have caught Daniel's faith. And what do we discover? As it turns out, King Darius is not the only one to fast through the night. The lion of the tribe of Judah shows up, King Jesus, and he forces the lions to fast as well. Daniel is delivered. He is saved and he is vindicated. Daniel's enemies and their wives and children are fed to the lions. And if anybody wants to disregard the supernatural nature of this and say, oh, the lions weren't hungry, right? They're on a juice fast. Let's keep reading. Daniel 26, or Daniel 6, 24. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions and their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the pit, the lions overpowered them. They broke all the bones in pieces. And then, King Darius wrote to all the peoples and nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you, he said. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring and forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be the end. He delivers and rescues. I can't do that, but he can. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Here it is, folks. Daniel's courageous, consistent, prayerful, public faith becomes contagious. And many people come to know that only God can deliver us from the pit of death. And only God can vindicate us from our enemies. And of course, God is only able to do this because much like Daniel, King Jesus chose to live a life of courage and consistent, word-centered and spirit-guided faith. And just like Daniel, his public faith got thrown him into a pit for which a stone was rolled across and sealed. But just as God delivered Daniel and shut the mouths of lion, the Father of heaven delivered his son from the jaws of death. He was delivered from death and vindicated. See, on the cross, Satan's sin and demons were made a spectacle of by Jesus Christ. And upon his resurrection, death was defeated and Jesus was elevated to the throne. His kingdom was established. And now, if you choose, you can inherit that same excellent spirit that lived in Daniel and live with faith rather than fear. So what will it be, friend? Faith or fear? As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're king. You shut the mouths of lions. You destroy the wicked. 
You've established a kingdom that will not perish, and you've called us to be a part of it as your sons and daughters. Lord Jesus, may we not shrink in fear. May you give us faith, faith to persevere in the midst of persecution. Help us know our Bibles and know what holy habits we need to put in place. Father, let's not shrink back from consistently practicing those holy habits. And I pray, Father, that the holy habits that we put in faith, guided by your word, would enable us to persevere when the crisis hits. Establish a character within us, Lord, that withholds amidst the crisis. And Lord Jesus, help us understand that you don't give us a, bio, a verse and chapter for each and every scenario in life, and that's because you want us to do life with you. When Jesus died, you said, I come to make a home within you. I've not left you as orphans. I've given you my spirit, the encourager, that will inject courage into you, that will remind you of the things I have spoken and let you know what to say when you're called before the kings of this world. May we live guided by this Spirit day by day. Give us ears to hear, Lord Jesus, and the faith to be obedient, no matter what. We love you. You're the king. Help us live for you, Lord. No compromises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.